Well, we have invited you to bring in a smartphone or, with, I guess with it turned, the sound turned off, a smartphone or an iPad or your Bible from home and trying to engage Scripture a bit, hands-on, if you will, as we make our way through uh, Ephesians. Uh, this is the third week of a sermon series, so I know if, you, if you've missed a week or two, you, you, you sort of already feel like you're out of the rhythm of the community's life, um, so I'm just to inform everybody, it's either a reminder, oh, okay, that's helpful to know, this is the third week of a sermon series on Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, as well as the church, St. Paul's in Somerville. And we've even invited uh, families or individuals to do some work at home one night or two nights a week. Um, That information is available at the back of door hall this morning if you want to take this next week's worksheet with you. But it's also easily available on the internet, uh, on our website, so you can grab it either way. And we simply have been enjoying the the truism that um, friends of Jesus are disciples of Jesus. And disciples of Jesus are friends of Jesus. And Jesus reminds us that as his friends, um, that he calls us, he's also chosen us as friends and has also appointed us to be fruit bearers. And really high quality fruit, fruit that will last, he says in John 15. So with that sort of thought in mind, the friends of Jesus, uh, we have made a rather wonderful journey, primarily focusing on the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. I invite you to turn to that again, and if we could have it on the screen as well. Um, and simply to remind where we've come from, that every letter of Paul has this same rhythm. It's kind of wonderful, because uh, first of all, he tells us what Jesus has accomplished in the earlier chapters of each of his letters. So as we make our way through chapter 1, 2, or 3, uh, what we discover in some wonderful, repetitive, rich way what Jesus has accomplished. We allowed the second chapter to be the place where we focused a couple weeks ago. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So he reminds us of uh, our circumstances. He reminds us that Jesus has accomplished something that is extraordinary, so extraordinary that it's unbelievable, and yet he has accomplished something for us by offering himself in our place and was the appropriate sacrifice in our place. His blood shed for our blood. And so Paul reminds us further along in the second chapter, it's simply by grace you've been saved. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's not what you necessarily deserve. You deserve punishment. You deserve the consequences. He says grace, pure gift, pure gift from the Lord. And just in case we miss that, he says it again later in this chapter. It is by grace you have been saved. And leads us into that great Protestant principle. It is by grace you have been saved. And he goes on through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, and it's not by works, so that no one can boast. So uh, we can just ride on that in a wonderful way as we did um, in, in weeks past. It is by grace you have been saved. It is through faith you have been saved. It is by Jesus Christ you have been saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus Christ alone. Hallelujah. And when one has that aha moment of what we spoke, of which uh, we offered to speak of a week ago, the aha moment is what Amazing Grace is all about. That great hymn by John Newton. Amazing Grace, I once was blind. 
I see now. I was lost in the ways of the world. I'm now found. I've come home. I'm another prodigal child that has found his way back to the Father. And it's an aha moment that every individual sitting in here, God intends for you to have. If you haven't had it, He wants you to have it. If you have had it, praise the Lord and alleluia. And once you have had an aha moment, there are more to come. Because as you enter on this new journey away from the world and into a life in Christ, what begins to happen is a whole changeover within. And so there are more aha moments that pile up on top of the original aha moments as we see more of God's grace in our lives. And so we are led to give more and more over to Him. We give our family over to Him. We give our material things over to Him. We give our wallets and pocketbooks over to Him. We give, um, we give all of our priorities over to Him and we say, no, Lord, you first, you first. And then let me, everything else, fall in place under that. So this aha moment is extraordinarily important. It may happen in a flash of time, just boom, black and white. I was here, I was, I'm now here. Or it may have been a progressive journey for you where, you know, I began this when I was in my early 20s. It took me seven or eight years. I wrestled with God. That's a C.S. Lewis kind of story. And, you know, he, when, once he arrived at a destination, he says, just riding in a car, he'd been wrestling with this for years. And he just knows that when he got in the car, he did not, he was not a Christian, and when he got to his definition, destination, he was a Christian. And so his aha moment finally came to a brink, and he stepped over, and he was never the same after that. And so now we have part of the implications that follow from the aha moment in this new life. Verse 19 that we've heard read this morning. I wish we had time to enjoy the entire backdrop of the Psalter today as well as the Gospel because there are lots of images that are given to us from Scripture of what this, um, this, uh, this new entity is like, uh, that of which we are now fellow um, members of. It's called a household, as we will see. We're called a temple. We're called the body of Christ. And the Jews had a wonderful understanding of this, that they were the Lord's vineyard. But what we're hearing in the gospel is a parable story of a vineyard that has become corrupted by its use. And so Jesus is speaking against that vineyard. He said, this is going to be taken away from you. We're talking about what has been put in place. We don't have time to talk about that other vineyard, but wish we could. Instead, let's look at the verse 19. Consequently, kind of a therefore, therefore. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's talking really to us, us white folks in this case, us Gentiles. He says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens to the promises. We remember that from perhaps a week or two ago. He said, you are a fellow citizen with God's people. He's talking about the marriage of Jew and Gentile into a new family of humankind and members of God's household. God's household is the royal household, the royal house. And you are now a prince or a princess in that household. He goes on and says, it's a household, begins to describe us as a building. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Their truth, their insight, their witness of Jesus. Built on the foundation of the apostles who saw the risen Lord and the prophets who, who uh, prophesied the coming of Messiah But then 
Jesus Christ himself, verse 20, as the chief cornerstone of this building. So to get that true line down this way, it is Jesus. To get that true line down this way, the chief cornerstone, it is Jesus who lines it up. To get the right kind of vertical uh, 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 angle on this building, it is still Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The temple in Jerusalem, that holiest of places, that place to which pilgrimages were made on vital, essential feast days, the center of the Jewish people, the temple. It was her political center. It was her economic center. It was especially her spiritual center where God was present. And now what is being described is a new kind of temple that has replaced the temple that ultimately is destroyed anyway. And a new temple that is raised up. It's a living temple. And in that temple, we become living stones making up the temple. All and in him, you too, last verse of this chapter, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A wonderful way to describe where the spirit is particularly manifested and active. Yes, within, but especially among the spirit is active. Just for the fun of it, and if you do have your Bible, just to uh, enjoy this, uh, this understanding of the temple, uh, there, uh, there is a place where Paul, one place he talks about, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you need to take care of yourself. But most of the temple images are about the community. For example, the Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter, the sixteenth verse. He says, "For we are the temple." See, inclusive. We are the temple of God. I'm sorry, of the living God, as God has said, "I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people." Here's the new temple that replaces the temple in Jerusalem spread across the earth. It can get even better. You say, well, it can be nothing better than being one of those stones that makes up this living temple, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. And I'm a part of that temple after that aha moment. And I've said yes to Jesus by faith. I believe in him. And now I'm being made into this temple and it's being built up. And it's me as well. But in the third chapter of Revelation, wow. He's speaking to the church in a little town called Philadelphia. And he says this. He says, him who overcomes, overcomes the ways of the world, overcomes the challenges of life, overcomes sin and all of that through Christ. Him who overcomes, God, here's Jesus speaking. This is Jesus. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will I leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So, does God mean that some of us will even be pillars in that temple? Indeed, he does. And we have that wonderful language of this, even in our common everyday speech. To, oh, he's a pillar of that community. He's a pillar of the church. 
Isn't it wonderful that you know some folks here who you happily say, oh, they're a pillar of the St. Paul's community. And what you mean by that is simply the highest of compliments. You, a living stone, acknowledging another as a living pillar. They're all around. It's pretty exciting. And they're just wonderful models and examples for our lives. I, 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 um, I sat with one yesterday. I, I think she's a pillar of St. Paul. She's a member of the vestry. And um, I, I learned yesterday, if there was any doubt in my mind, I knew, know she's a living stone. I think she's a pillar too, probably. But yesterday I learned she really is a pillar. Rita Corbett. I want to share this with you. She's given me permission to uh, share her circumstance. She had major surgery on her abdomen on Friday. And she learned out after she was uh, uh, woken up that uh, they found cancer all over her abdomen. Here, there. It's not operable. They will have to reconvene the physicians and decide what they're going to do. And to hear Rita in the context of that news saying, I'm not afraid. I'm going to fight this. I know God loves me. I mean, just you could see it in her eyes, the faith of her heart, thinking, there's a pillar of the community of St. Paul's under duress, being tested, if you will, and she just brightly looks into the future. Wow. Him who overcomes, she who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And never again will the Lord leave that temple. Well, what a great image we have. So, what we would like to talk about today and for the next few weeks is really the implications once we hear with the ears of our heart, see with the eyes of the heart what Jesus has accomplished, his love for you. God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, offers himself. Remember what we also said that when Jesus came, he came and was example of how then shall we live? He was also substitute as he offered himself on the cross so that we would not experience death ultimately. And he promises an enabling power for our lives that is far greater than any of our own will power, Holy Spirit power. And when we have that aha moment, what happens next? You're in the household. You're a living stone. You're becoming perhaps a pillar of the temple. The temple's the living temple. Witness to God's truth and light and love. This morning for the remainder of this, I want to talk about something very practical, very simple, and very ordinary. And it's how to be a participant as a living stone. How to be a participant. In our, the language, the older language of the prayer book, uh, the word used is partaker which is partake, is kind of a lovely way, but participants pretty uh, equally kind of gets the idea, is um, in this new life, um, we're invited to be participants. Now here I'm not talking about witness or ministry or anything out in the world. Remember the title of this, the friends of Jesus with one another as living stones of one temple, for here is the temple, and so how shall we live together? How do we participate 
So very practical and fundamental, but very, very true. And the first is worship. It's that simple. The body of Christ comes together for worship. Not once every six weeks. Not once every four weeks. The body of Christ gathers for worship at least once a week on the day of the resurrection. And the living stones gather together to celebrate that, to give thanks for that, and to be fed and nourished out of this gathered community to go back into the world. Worship is how we are participants. And worship means wholehearted, wholesale participants. It's really not saying, I came just to observe things. No, you come and enter in. I confess that sometimes I do not feel like singing. And sometimes I'm worshiping without singing, just enjoying the glory and praise of other voices. But sometimes I'm just being obstinate. And I've kind of got my arms crossed, not to, not, there's nothing wrong with your arms crossed, Tom. Didn't mean to, just, just happened to look at you by accident as I was saying that. And I realize that I'm, I'm not really in participant mode in worship. And I, I need to get my, let go. Sometimes I, I get, need to get my arms up, at least let go. I need to open my voice and start singing. I realize as I begin to be a participant instead of an, an observer, something begins to happen within me, and it's neat and right and good. So to be in worship is to enter in, to pray for the worship team as they pray for us, to pray for the preacher, to pray uh, for one another as we worship together, to be fed. And you know this wonderful activity we have here of sitting as well as standing, coming forward to the communion, going back, all this activity is a way of uh, getting our bodies involved and even raising our hands is a way of simply involving ourselves in worship, participation as a worshiper. And I simply will say to you very directly and point blank, every week, every week. Now, we're going to get to the guilt in this in a minute because some of you are feeling a little shred of guilt when I say that. And forget, we're, not going, we're, we're going to repent of guilt. That's not what we're talking about. Secondly, I'm a convert to this, but I've been a decade, many decades long convert. But an introvert to be converted to this is very significant. And that is small group life. I mean, Jesus was not kidding when he said, when two or three gather together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The whole is greater than some of its parts. And part of friends of Jesus with one another, part of being a disciple of the Lord, is finding a small group. We used to have a few here. We have many here now, 70 to 90 generally on a you know, given season of the year, 70 to 90. And um, I simply know that in a small group, uh, I have had that experience, the Lord present, something glorious happens there, and we come together. There's something there we can accomplish that we can't accomplish when hundreds are gathered together, a, a level of intimacy in sharing our lives together, of praying for one another, of opening the Bible to one another and looking at passages that's a bit troublesome, and someone else has an insight that helps you build on your understanding of that, and then you can build on theirs, and someone else adds something. There's something very powerful in that because it's not just their insight. The Holy Spirit is active in that, and so the small group is simply a place where friends of Jesus with one another commit to that at least every other week, if not every, other, every week. And then the last one is a more of a private kind of thing, but it's essential also it's a, in terms of being one of these living stones. And that is, as a participant, worship, small group, and quiet time every day. I'm not talking about whether you miss a day here or there. That's not the point. It's about intention. Quiet time every day. Time with you and the Lord. Best of all, same location every day. And best of all, a location where you don't do anything else except that's your time with the Lord. With your Bible and a time to pray, which is listening as well as speaking. 
a time for being quiet then and a time to open the book and say, you know, God's going to speak to me today. This word is a living word and there's going to be something here for me to take into the day. Five minutes of quiet time every day is better than nothing. Five minutes that may grow into 10 or 15 minutes or as a disciple and as a friend, it just all of a sudden you look at the clock and say, gosh, it's been 40 minutes today or 60 minutes, however that grows. So it's as simple as that, isn't it? And yet it's as hard as that. Uh, participants, friends of Jesus with one another. This is a temple. This is the household, the vineyard, the body of Christ. It's something we do together in the best of ways. When we worship and when we enjoy a small group and when we have that quiet time every day. Now there's a qualifier I want to add here and I'm almost finished. And that is this. I wrote it somewhere. I thought I might see what I wrote, but I can't find it. Hmm, that's interesting. I thought it was pretty important to tell you about this, too. <laughs> um, I have to wing it. This is really important. Uh, this is, um, it's the difference between, you've heard, some of you have heard me say this more recently, it's the difference between prescription and description. Prescription is what you do. Description is who you are. Prescription is ought and should. You ought to come to church every Sunday. Description is who you are. Well, we come to church every Sunday because we want to. There's a huge difference between the two prescription is essentially the law you should be here at church every sunday and let me get my finger out too just make you feel a little more guilty see you should be at church every sunday you should have been here last week you should be here see it's law that's a prescription for your life it has its place but it's not very helpful the one who has seen what jesus has accomplished who has had the aha moment who has had a change in their lives they're no longer living under a prescription it simply describes, describes their lives today. Well, I'm here every Sunday because I want to be here, that person says. I give this much to the community financially because well, that's what we wanted to decide to do, to put God first and his church first. I want to, um, I want to be in a small group. It, it's just, yes, I, I was in a small group in Alpha, and I found out how rich it was, and so I continued with a small group after Alpha. Why? Well, because I wanted to. It simply is a description of your life. That prescriptive life is law-based under oughts and shoulds, and the only thing that works with it is your willpower, which usually fails. And that other life is grace-based, and it is a description of your life after the aha moment, because part of that aha moment is the Holy Spirit coming in and melting a heart, and all of a sudden, you say, this is just the way I want to live. I haven't, I, you know, this is it. I want to be a participant as one of the living stones of his living temple. So keep that in mind. It's not, I will try harder, in other words. It is, Lord, have your way with me. Have your way with me. Melt me more and more in love with you, Lord, so I will want more and more to be with you and to be with his people. All right, let me end on this note. Do you remember that now? Participants, the friends of Jesus with one another, worship, small group, quiet time. Worship, small group, quiet time. Worship, small group, quiet time. Uh, Spencer Simrel, I just, this was on the internet this week. He's the dean of the cathedral in Minneapolis. 
Uh, Spencer and I grew up once upon a time. He dated my sister, and I dated his sister. And uh, uh, neither one of us um, stayed dating the other person either. I did not marry his sister, and he did not marry my sister, which is good. But, uh, <laughs> and I won't go, there are lots of reasons why it's good, actually. But um, Spencer wrote this in his uh, newsletter this week. He says, one of the formative experiences of my journey with Jesus Christ was living in an intentional community from 1974 to 1978. Uh, we're living in an intentional community right now, see. At Koinonia Farm in America's Georgia, while we lived there, Habitat for Humanity was born, at, uh, was born at Koinonia. This experience profoundly shaped my understanding of God and our purpose in the world. I learned we are created for community, to be in communion and with each other, to share our deepest longings for the Holy One and to pass the love and mystery of Christ along to others. Sounds like our vision statement of impacting the world in Jesus' name. We want folks to fall in love with God, become a follower of the Lord Jesus, and go and impact the world. We are created to belong, Spencer writes, and we cannot belong by ourselves. We need each other's strengths, warts, and each other's unique spirit to grow and serve to build the other up in Jesus Christ. Belonging is something we must learn to do. Jesus modeled community by choosing an unlikely group called the Twelve Disciples. We, like our Lord, are to love people even at their worst, not just when they are at their best. Belonging has to be intentionally cultivated. It involves a commitment to listening skills, reconciling skills, fellowship skills, forgiving skills. I simply appreciate Spencer writing with such passion about this idea of the household of God. I like the image household, but I like even better the image temple. The temple that replaces the temple. The living temple made up of human beings. Human beings who have the name of Christ on their hearts. Human beings who give witness to the holiness of God and the righteousness of God by living out their lives. Human beings who are participants and partakers. Human beings who worship and enjoy a small group, and do quiet time because they love the Lord Jesus. Because they want to, not because they ought to. Be a partaker. Be a participant. Seek out that aha moment. Because Jesus has accomplished a great thing for you. Praise the Lord. Come back next week for more Amen. Let us stand and share the peace, brothers and sisters.